and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Doug Lamov is the author of the international bestseller, Teach Like a Champion, and that title really does speak to Doug and his background in the education system, but also that idea of a champion. Play Like a Champion is a line that Notre Dame football uses in their locker room and perhaps you know of the sign that they hit before they enter the field. So Teach Like a Champion is a nice play on that concept. And Doug really does live at the intersection of sport and education, teaching and coaching. And that book, Teach Like a Champion, is now in its third version and has had wild success, especially in the world of education and teaching and coaching. He also has written The Coach's Guide to Teaching. He's the co-author of a book called Practice Perfect Reading Reconsidered, 
Teaching in the Online Classroom, and another book called Reconnect. So he is definitely a writer. He's definitely someone who likes to be with his computer and and create theories and ideas and competencies and content that can serve other people. In addition to his work studying teachers, he also is somebody who is obsessed with coaching and the sports world. And he writes his books by studying what high-performing teachers do, uh, which then can help us better understand how we learn and how we educate in and outside of the classroom. So he definitely has his roots in education, but has expanded his range to include the sports world. So this is a conversation about sport, about education, and more importantly, about learning. And Doug is an elite thinker when it comes to learning and teaching. So here is Doug Lamov. Doug, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Before we started recording, we were talking about sports like rugby and Australian rules football. So I'm going to give Cody Royal a shout out right away because Cody's Cody's the (laughs) one that introduced me to your work. I loved his podcast and listened to it back in the day and then have followed you since. And so maybe we start with this sort of idea of the intersection of a classroom and a sports field Mm -hmm. of teaching and coaching. So talk about your journey, not from the beginning to the end, but just in those intersections and what it's been like for you playing in the classroom, but also playing in the world of sports. Yeah, thanks. And by the way, thanks for having me on. I'm uh, really been looking forward to it. So I, most of my work for a long time was just in the world of teaching. And, you know, it's like a 30 second background for, uh, for your listeners. Um, I was the, I founded a charter school in Boston and became the principal of the school and then went to, business school. And during that time, I was sort of helping a bunch of schools. You know, these are primarily inner city schools, just get better at teaching. And um, there really wasn't, you know, I would meet these fantastically motivated, young, smart people who wanted to make a difference in the lives of kids. And they would walk out of the classroom and they would come and ask us uh, when I was running a school or supporting people running schools, you know, what do you do when? And there'd be these fascinating questions like you have a kid who she tries so hard and she does not seem to make any progress in reading or what do you do when you walk in the classroom and you say, okay, guys, let's, you know, let's all sit down and get started. And a kid who's twice your size says to you, you sit down, right? Like, uh, and there weren't really a lot of answers to these really practical questions about teaching. And so I kind of went out to a lot of schools. Uh, What I tried to do is I built like a, built like a big regression of like poverty versus school performance. So, you know, where, my goal was to find high performing schools in underprivileged communities, you know, like, and it turns out they're there, <laughs> even in a city where, you know, you look at the educational data and everyone says it's not working and it's not working in the aggregate, but there are always three or four classrooms where some masterful teacher is doing incredible things and all of her students are learning. And so I tried to sneak into these classrooms to like watch what these teachers did that made them different. And as soon as I started to do it, it was incredible. And I, I thought I, my, I had a background in, in playing sports growing up also, and I kind of liked to use video a lot. And part of me was thinking, nobody's going to believe this unless I show them the video to show them just to like what solution the teachers came up with. So I, I, I snuck a video camera into the back of the room and, you know, the first couple clips I took, you know, they look like bad wedding video or something. Um, but that ultimately became this book that I, I wrote called Teach Like a Champion, which is I kind of just tried to break down the game film of teaching and say, you know, here, here's what you can do in this situation. Here's some options. 
Uh, and so for a long time, that's, that's kind of what I did. And then gradually, you know, at the U.S. Soccer Federation said, oh, we, you know, we've read your book on teaching. Would you be interested in working with coaches? Um, and I hadn't really thought about coaching as a form of teaching, though, of course, it is a form of teaching. It has like a, a bunch of its own unique challenges that make it different. But there's a lot of continuity as well. And just in the course of trying to answer questions for coaches, I ended up like just doing a lot of research and, you know, writing a book about sport coaching. And like, I guess the one thing that I would say is like, as I was doing this at first, I tried to keep it a secret from my staff. You know, I run an organization that does teacher professional development. And for the first couple of years, I would like, I would, you know, dash off and spend a couple of days with the U.S. Soccer Federation and come back and try and like, I don't know, not reveal where I had been, but the analogies were so, there's so much that teachers have to teach. The teachers can, can teach coaches, but there's actually a lot that coaches can also teach teachers. And I found myself in my sort of meetings with my teaching staff, like unable to resist telling the stories about what I'd learned from working with coaches as well. So I would just say like the, the learning definitely goes both ways. And I feel really lucky to kind of live with a, with a foot in both worlds. There's a lot of threads that I could pull on, but the one that I think I'm most curious about is why is it that you felt like you couldn't share the coaching world with mm -hmm. your teachers and maybe we zoom out a little bit and maybe mm -hmm. think about what might be barriers for all of us in bringing in something from outside our environment into our environment. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, part, you know, I think part of it was, I, I think I underestimated coaching. Um, you know, I think a lot of the reasons that I work in the school sector is because I think schools are the most important institutions in society. And when they don't work, you know, it's morally untenable. Uh, it's untenable from a moral perspective and possibly from a democracy perspective to not have schools work for a significant portion of the population. So I get back and I would be like, you know, I would feel a little bit guilty for spending 20 days a year, you know, um, doing what I love, you know, being interested in something that I loved, but didn't feel as morally imperative. But again, like the more time I spent with it, the more I realized that it's all human capacity development. It's all how we develop people and that actually there, there's quite a lot there. Um, and you know, so it really is, it really is the same work. And so I think I, I kind of, I got over that, you know, relatively quickly, but at first I felt some misgivings about it. And of course, historically in our country, at least teachers and coaches used to be the same person all the time, right? Yeah. The high school coach was teaching in the school and, you know, middle school coach was yeah. teaching in the school and college coach was teaching at the school. Uh, and even you'll see the John Woodens or the coach K's or yeah. the legends, Tom Osborne comes to mind. Like a lot of them taught also on, on campuses. And so I'm curious if we go the other direction, what do coaches have to learn from teachers that you found in your journey in working in sports that maybe they're missing in the coaching world that they could benefit from learning from some teachers in classrooms across the country or, or across the world? Yeah, and maybe I'll just start by telling you a story, which is I was doing a workshop for um, coaches in the pro license course for Major League Soccer. So these are the coaches of the Major League Soccer franchises. U.S. Soccer Federation decided there should be a license course for them. So I was doing a workshop for them and I decided and, and in my workshops for teachers, you know, they're really video based. So what we'll typically do is we'll talk about a concept, you know, generally I'll introduce it and then, you know, uh, we'll watch a video and we'll study a video. And so this first, I remember this first video that I showed, it's of a math teacher uh, who teaches in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. His name is Denarius Frazier. He's one of my favorite teachers to show video. He's, he's a brilliant teacher. 
And so I planned to build this workshop for the soccer coaches around his, his math lesson. And, uh, and right before I got up to the front of the room, I was like, I just had this moment of like somewhere between dread and misgiving. I was like, you plan to do what? You're going to show a math class to a bunch of soccer coaches and like ask them to extrapolate. And so, but this, this, this video is actually really fascinating. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about it, but like, you know, to like cut to the end of the story is like, I showed the video and I'm like waiting for the brutal silence. And like, I'm like, what did you notice in the video? And like the exploded to life with the things that coaches observed. And interestingly, I think in some ways you can see the things more clearly when you're not distracted by your own content. In other words, my original goal was like, oh, I'll show soccer coaches lots of video of other soccer coaches and we'll talk about what they're doing. When you show a, show a soccer coach a video of another soccer coach, um, they're more inclined to be judgmental and be like, oh, you know, that's not how you, that's not how you coach the, the three back defense. Or um, they'd be, you know, so distracted by the tactics that they couldn't see the fundamentals of like feedback and structure. But you show them a math lesson and like right away that like, so this lesson of Daenerys is beautiful because um, he gives his students two math problems to do. And he says, um, I'm coming around to check your quotient. And he starts walking, he's got a clipboard in his hand. He's walking around and he like goes up to each kid and he gives them like this beautifully precise individual piece of feedback. Check your remainder. Remainder's not correct. Ooh, you're killing it. Ooh, much better than last time. Uh, make sure your work is lined up. It's hard to track where your digits are. And like in, in three seconds, he's allowed, he's able to target a piece of feedback. He goes to every single kid. And he's also taking notes on this clipboard as he goes around. Because, you know, we know that human working memory is severely limited. You can really only think of one thing at a time. And if you try to think about too many things at a time, things things leave your working memory, you can't remember them. And so the notion that like, you're gonna walk around this classroom and watch 30 students doing two separate problems with four steps each and remember who knows how to do the problem. What are the mistakes that my, that my students are making? What do I need to step in and address? Like mental notes in a, in a context that complex are almost, you know, you're kidding yourself if you think you're gonna do that. So you kind of see him like he's taking notes as he goes around. He makes this beautiful intervention where he like he takes a student's paper off her desk and projects it to the class and says, great. Um, as I walked around, I noticed that a lot of us are struggling to find the remainders of these problems. Here's, you know, here's her work. Let's take a look at it and study it. He does this beautiful job of making it like an, uh, a shared endeavor where like the student doesn't feel judged at all. And the students then analyze her work and they're like, OK, here's here's what she's done. Here's how here's how we need to approach it differently. And he's like, great, go back to work from there. They're back at it. And so a couple of, so first of all, the coaches, the first thing that one of the coaches said was like, he's teaching everybody. And the next thing that the coach said was, there are lots of times when there are guys who I don't talk to all day or all week. And when someone walks up to you and says, really nice job, make sure your digits are lined up. Oh, you're doing much better than last time. You feel important to the endeavor. And you like, and, and really like, this is a relationship video. And then we talked about the fact that like, so how was he able to do this? Because the average teacher isn't able to walk around and give like every kid a targeted piece of feedback in three seconds. And the way that he's doing it has a lot to do with the way that he's prepared the lesson. So on this clipboard that he's walking around with, he's anticipated the likely errors that students would make on this problem and he's written them down so he can just tick them off when he sees them so that he's more likely to see the mistakes if he's sort of anticipated what they might be. 
and he's written out the correct answer and he knows the correct answer to the problem but by writing it out he's constantly able to like refresh his own working memory and compare what he sees on each student's paper to the right answer that's on his paper and so really quickly diagnose and spot these and so a lot of the reason that he's able to provide this beautiful individualized feedback is because of his preparation and this like this clipboard that he's walking around with <laughs> like and so we talk with coaches all the time about like, when you plan a session don't just plan what you want to have happen write out notes for yourself on look what is what does a plus execution look like if we're working on building out of the back what are the three or four things i need to see to know that we're world class at it and what are the mistakes that students are likely to make so that i'm more likely to see them and then i can like tabulate them and be like pause okay guys we're doing it we're doing a decent job but we need to make sure that the pace of pass is faster the ball needs to move quickly when we're building out of the back so we can exploit gaps in in uh the opponent's shape so let's work on that now so it's, it's a beautiful lesson it starts with this preparation it results in this kind of like relationship building environment that makes everyone feel seen and important and cared about and i do think like there are a lot of both coaches and teachers you hear this phrase all the time which is they don't care what you say until they know that you care and i was watching this video with a group of other teachers and one of my colleagues said how do they know you care until you take the time to teach them and show them that you see their progress and that you want that you can want to make them better and there are a thousand teachers and coaches out there who are trying who are out there this morning trying to show their students that they care by high-fiving them and asking them what movie they saw over the weekend and really the way to show people that you value them and to care especially in an endeavor where people want to get better is to make them better and to be an effective teacher and so I think that that sort of aphorism kind of breaks down a little bit to me because teaching well is one of, is, is one of the primary ways that a teacher shows that they that they care. So there's a lot to unpack in all. Yeah, of sorry, that. I was a little bit of a. I'm gonna a little bit of. I'm gonna pull on the bird walk there. I'm gonna pull on the relationship thread because it was something. All of your work is sort of jumbled for me because mm -hmm. I've I've followed you for a while and but one of the pieces that really caught my attention was what you just said about making them better and. Mm -hmm. That, that a leader of any sort or a manager or a coach or a teacher, if you can't make your people better, I don't care how kind you are, how much you know yeah. about their family. Um, like those are all great and they're important things to have when you're trying to build relationships with people. But even yeah. when I think about my spouse, um, like, is she making me better? Am I making her better? My friends, are they making me better? Am I making their lives better? And yeah. I think that concept of just making them better. I've been fortunate. I've interviewed players in three different professional sports at their combines when they're looking to go professional. And I'm amazed at who they who really loves their head coach. And when I ask them why they always will talk about how much they made them better and that they're in yeah. part responsible for the reason that they're interviewing to play professional sports. And so I want to talk about like transactional leadership and transformational leadership, mm -hmm. because I think sometimes we glamorize transformational leadership as being a better version of leadership because it's simply focused on the whole person and you're trying to develop them as a human and not just for what they can do for you. And then transactional, we're seen as it's a job and you're just doing your job. And the more that I do this podcast, the more I'm actually drawn away from that binary and more yeah. toward the notion of like, there's probably a better definition that is aligned with what you have to, how you think about great coaching should be, which is perhaps you focus on improvement mm 
and growth. And then from there, you build a relationship because you've added value to the person. So can you suss that out for me from your seat and what you've seen yeah. both in the classroom or in the business world or, or in the, the sports world, as far as how, how can we think about the idea of leadership management, coaching, teaching from a make them better? And then what comes from that? Yeah. It's a great question. And honestly, I think that your description of, of just breaking down that, um, that false binary, I think is, is probably better than anything I can say on, on this topic because I really agree with it. But I think that, um, right, there's something really surprising about who are the most inspirational teachers in our lives. And oftentimes they're quiet and they're introverted and they're not the over the top, you know, like, uh, you know, bringing in, you know, the, like stories of folk wisdom. They're just like, you know, your foot placement's got to be different. You know, like you, you know, you've got it. Like, uh, you know, I think one of the most overlooked moments in coaching is a player gets it right and never knows that they got it right because no one's really watching carefully and no one says that was exactly it. Do it again. Just like that. You know, that we think about praise as a tool to make people happier as opposed to, to help people know what to replicate. And I, I do think that like many of the teachers who like the teacher in this video that I'm describing, Denarius, like his students would walk through fire for him. But if I said, you know, if I showed you a you know, video of three or four teachers and said, spot the inspirational teacher, like he, he, would, he wouldn't jump out at you at first because he's really focused on the math. And maybe even like at first that wouldn't be the kid's choice, but he convinces them over time that he, that they are capable of more than they thought. And that they can that they can do it and they see themselves improving and that is a profoundly motivating experience you know there's a lot of research on motivation that that, that says like the most motivating thing is your own success like you see yourself getting better you know and like video game maker makers exploit this all the time right you see yourself going up a level and you're like oh i want to keep playing i'm leveling up i'm constantly leveling up and i think that that's what a lot of what a great teacher is doing is like making sure that you level up and making sure that you see yourself leveling up and after a time, when you've leveled up with someone eight, 10, 12 times, now you want to start to have a, full, a, a philosophical conversation and a broader relationship with them. And you want to understand, like, what is it that, how do you think about this journey more broadly? But really, you kind of have to start the journey first in most cases. And I think that's a lot of, you know, I'm not saying I don't believe in transformational leadership, but I think that it actually starts with the transaction in a lot of cases. And I think there's a danger in going right to the transformation and skipping the transaction, which is the transaction is our job. Like we will transform some of the people that we work with, but our job is to make them is to make them better at the interactions in daily life. I think it's a, in daily life. I think it's a challenge in the classroom, which is there's a risk of wanting to be loved as a teacher. I coached a teacher once. I loved this teacher. She was such a fantastic person. But one of the risks of teaching is you're on stage and it's catnip to be loved and have the kids laugh at your jokes and tell and tell funny stories and have kids love that. And I think that this teacher was unable to step away from telling the funny story and being the center of attention and being like, great, now in your notebooks, five minutes, write a paragraph. 
because they didn't love her that <laughs> she didn't get laughter when she did that. Um, and in the end, I think she wanted to be liked too much to really do what was beneficial. To, there has to be this sort of self-discipline to be, I think, a really great coach. I kind of described this in, in, in the coach's guide to teaching, which is like, let's compare coach A and coach B. Coach A is demonstrative, demonstrative on the sideline and he's shouting and exhorting his team. And it's, you know, like they're down by a goal with two minutes left and he makes, and he's, you know, you can hear him shouting things to the players and he makes a key substitution at the end and they manage to pull it out and they tie the game and they win the game. And in the parking lot, the parents say, wow, you know, coach K really pulled it out for the boys today versus coach B is like, he's super quiet on the sidelines. He's prepared his players really well. They're actually never down in the first place because he's taught them to understand what the opposition is doing and how to react to it. Uh, and uh, they win the game and in the parking lot, no one mentions him, right? And they're just like, oh yeah, the boys played great today. They really, they really executed well. And, you know, actually he's done a better job uh, quietly, undemonstrably without being the center of, it, but of attention. But I think there's this lure to being coach A and wanting to get, wanting to be visibly the source of the, visibly at the center of the drama. And I think that there's a selflessness that is a real challenge in the, in the teaching professions and it can lead us to, you know, like, to want to engage in behaviors that make us appear more central to the story, to be a guru, to be transformational. When a lot of times what people need is just like transaction after transaction, after transaction, after transaction, where they're just getting better and better and better. And that really, it doesn't serve our egos as much, but it serves the learners a lot. As you talk about drama, I think of the drama triangle, which if people are unfamiliar with the drama triangle, yeah. I encourage them to Google it. Uh, a quick synopsis is the drama triangle is where there's three different roles and they create more drama when you're playing one of these roles. So there's a hero, a villain, and a victim. And of mm -hmm. course, if you follow our films and our TV, they want drama because you'll keep Always. watching. Just like your video game analogy, there is uh, eyeballs that will come to drama. And so... Uh, there's something called the empowerment dynamic and I can't remember who created the empowerment dynamic, but once again, you can Google and find out who created it, but he suggests moving from hero to coach from victim to creator and from villain to challenger. And yeah. so the key is to be aware of what role am I playing in the drama? If I'm playing the victim, let's try to figure out ways to be a creator. If I'm playing the hero, which by the way, I think most coaches and teachers and managers, they are guilty of getting into that hero mode. That's probably part of why they're doing what they're doing is they like playing the hero. How can they get into more of a coach role and maybe ask questions, yeah. and guide people. And then of course, if you're more of a villainous role, which we again see in leadership, demonstrative, behavior um instead of being a villain how can you challenge and it sounded like demarius in his role was staying away from the drama instead of playing villain he was playing the challenger instead of playing hero he was playing coach and as a result the people that might otherwise felt like a victim feel like they can be more of a creator um and i think of a basketball coach when you're talking about the clipboard concept because uh, I once went to a basketball game when Brad Stevens was the Butler head basketball coach. And we had had a phone conversation for 20 minutes prior to him coming to town. And that 20 minute phone conversation, which I was so excited for at the time, he was coming off back to back final appearances with Butler University. Um, 
I didn't really get to ask him any questions because he spent the entire call asking me questions. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I go to the game and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to observe him and ask him questions in an email about what I observed. And that way I'll get more information from him. So I go, I sit right above the bench and I just observe him and his staff. And one of the things that blew my mind was that his staff were not taking stats. Uh, if you watch a college basketball game, a high school basketball game, an NBA game, you'll see staff like charting and they might be charting something called paint touches or they might be charting defense or the whatever. They're they're charting different stats that the the team values. And so afterwards, I, I sent him an email and I asked him, like, why wasn't your staff tracking uh, the stats? And he said, well, I can get stats anywhere, but a good idea while we're performing is worth its weight in gold compared to a stat. And that really caught my attention of what is the purpose of a performance and what are we trying to do? We're trying to add value to help make the game easier on our guys to help win a game. But I'm thinking about now a difference between a head coach and a teacher, which is a head coach might have a staff of five to yeah. 10 people that can give them one idea that might change the trajectory of a performance, whereas a teacher is often in isolation. And so there's a difference in the room or the performance in terms of the support that we give sports coaches, even at the high school level, or right. even, even like when I coach my kids, there's another coach there that we can interact and we can support each other. But it seems like teaching mainly, and I know sometimes they have co-teachers and sometimes they have a student teacher, but it seems like an isolating um, experience. How, how can you, how can you be in the moment and get the things that you want done while still yeah having the awareness of being almost meta and, and seeing things from like a macro and a micro level in your experience in witnessing great teachers, how, how the heck do they do it? Yeah. I mean, I think you've described one of the biggest single challenges of the teaching profession, which is it's an incredibly lonely, isolating job, right? You close the door and you're the only adult in the room and it's you and, you know, 38 year olds or 30, you know, 16 year olds. And so you rarely get, you can really get feedback. You really get to see other people do your job, you know? Um, so I, I think a couple, I think a couple things. One is I think observation is one of the biggest challenges of, of, of teaching, which is if you're trying to, what you're describing of the dynamic between a coach and, the, and his staff and a group of assistant coaches, it's a really powerful thing to have people observing for different things. I mean, I think one of the, one of the, we talk about, in the education sector, the limits of, of student working memory all the time, you know, you can really hold one idea in your head at a time, but working memory affects all human beings, right? One of the most useful things that I often talk about with sport coaches is who's watching for what, like when I have a premier league club that I work with and an NBA club that I work with. And a lot of times what we'll talk about is, okay, I see your plan for practice when you're practicing which assistant coach is looking for what thing. And usually they'll start by saying, yeah, we're all looking for that. And if like everybody's looking for everything then nobody's looking for anything, because you can really only concentrate well on one thing at a time. And I, if you want to, I have some really like fascinating stories about this. But one of the first things I encourage them to think about is, okay, one, you should assign someone in your staff to be looking for like, how many, how many opportunities are there for runs in behind? And how often do we take them? And why don't we take them when we don't take them? And if we're, we're looking to see whether the 18 year old outside back is ready to make his debut. Like someone should just be watching him the whole time, not just when he's on the ball, but off the ball and watching him for like both his emotional like regulation and his, 
uh, his you know reaction to the play. And if we really want to understand it, we have to watch for it carefully. And you can't do that in a classroom, right? You can't, even though the head coach can step back, well, I think one of the most useful things is for a head coach to step back and let the assistant run the activity. And now your job is only to watch. And I'm not feeding the balls in and I'm not, not you know exhorting the guys. I'm just watching what's happening. Watching is so underrated as a teaching, uh, as, as a teaching and coaching skill. Hey, Doug, can I jump in yeah. here? I, yeah. Because I'm thinking about my experience in sports, and I've had mm-hmm. way more experience in sports than the, in the classroom other than my own experience as a, as a student. Some of my favorite experiences are when coaches have to be muted and the players mm-hmm. actually run the practice. And I've seen it, especially with a veteran team, where mm-hmm. the players are now running the practice and the coaches, they're just there to observe and, and take notes. And then afterwards, they'll debrief it. And it's so, so powerful when you can have ownership over practice that the players are now running, to your point earlier, where they don't even need the coaches. That's going to help them on sure. game day. So I'm wondering in the, in the classroom, like it's unrealistic for us to have a staff of five to 10 people in a classroom. Mm-hmm. I think many of us understand that. But I'm wondering if there's a possibility there where, or if you've ever witnessed it with a teacher who empowers the students to observe and and really empowers them to be their own teachers and support system for each other. Have you witnessed that? Is that is that just too idyllic? Is there any potential in that as you think about how our classrooms could 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 continue to improve? Yes. Um, so it, it comes up a lot. And I think there are a lot of people who their sort of goal for the classroom is let's design classrooms where the students are in charge of their own learning. And I would say that, like, I, I think there's some benefits to that and some limitations to it. It can be a powerful. So generally speaking, I think that like experts are, you know, experts and novices learn differently. And the cognitive science is really clear on this and that experts given a problem solving situation. Someone creates a problem for them and their job is to go solve it without direct instruction. Experts are much more able to do that than novices and novices really struggle to learn from endeavors like that. And so I think the first decision you would have to make as a teacher is like, who are my learners here? Are we experts or are we novices? If we're novices, uh, more weighting towards like actual explicit instruction is going to be more preferable. But over time, maybe right before the exam, when we've spent several weeks on something, now we're ready to like, we're close to expertise on this. And now we're really ready for a problem where I can step back. I think this is like, a you know, I was sort of talking about the sort of the risk of romanticism. I think this is something where classroom teachers would often romanticize this, which is like, if an NBA, an NBA team can do this, because all those guys are world-class, right? And they're all expert and they've been playing basketball for 20 years. And so as soon as like there's you know the defensive spacing is off they see it and they can exploit it and they've learned from it and now they're looking for it and a bunch of novices you know like you and me and my and our and our buddies you know we're not going to notice those things and so we're not you know you you learn from your perception relatively in correspond in correlation to how much knowledge you have coming in so i think that model can the model of like students owning the classroom more can be powerful in part because it also allows the teacher to observe more and to be more focused on observation, which is very powerful. But you would have to use it with like discretion and uh, and reserve and wait until you had established expertise first, as opposed to like, I mean, I think one of the challenges in the teaching profession is people remember the educational experiences that they had as experts and they want to create them for novices. 
I was an English major and I remember the seminars that I had in university and graduate school where the professor would come in and say, you know, what do you notice in the text? And we would then just talk and like, I think many English teachers then who are, you know, go from university to the, the classroom, they want to recreate that dynamic in the classroom with a group of seventh graders. But actually the seventh graders really need more, they don't know as much, as much about how texts work and they don't know as much about 18th century literature as a, you know, as a graduate student does. And so they really, they need to have you really build the world, build the knowledge for them first, and then put them in, in a more sort of uh, what I've described as like experiential setting. So I think the model that you, you're describing can work and can be really beautiful. It just requires a process to build up to it that teachers sometimes um, overlook the importance of. And in part, this is because I think one of the key similarities between teaching and coaching is just how much, how central to both endeavors and understanding of the cognitive science of learning is. And it's just not, it's not out there the way that it needs to be. And in fact, one thing that I think schools, you know, when I, when I show up at a sport franchise, I showed up at a minor league baseball team in a Rust Belt city. It was an A-league team one time. And I was talking about Daniel Kahneman's book, um, uh, and a batting coach, the hitting coach literally took the book out of his backpack and he was like, I'm reading it too, thinking fast and slow, right? And I was like, uh, there's a real passion for the science in the sporting world because people understand how, how powerful small competitive advantages can be. And I think that the, the world of schools has to be a lot more serious about understanding what the cognitive science tells us and doesn't and how it shapes learning. Uh, and that it's not just, yeah. So, um, so I think that's that's a kind of a classic a classic example of uh, if teachers know understand the cognitive science of when and how, then a more distributive model can really work. And if they don't understand it, then they're might likely to misapply it. You talk about focus and this idea of you have to know what you're looking for. Um, yeah. What do we typically beyond that? Hey, maybe everyone's focused on the same thing and everyone's yeah. looking at the same thing. What else do we get wrong about attention? I, I just saw an article mm -hmm. you wrote about attention contagion, and I thought it was yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So that's an example. But what else do we maybe get wrong, whether it's focusing, everyone's focused on the same thing, or yeah. we don't understand the value of attentional contagion. Uh, I just think focus is so valuable to all of us, right? Whether it's business, sport, classroom, et cetera. Uh, what, what, are other, what, are, what other thoughts do you have around focus? Yeah, I think one of the things that we also... I think that we don't understand the difference between understanding and learning. Understanding is what I have at the end of a session when a concept that we've been talking about is still in my working memory. We've been talking about pressing and what our pressing cues need to look like and, uh, and how we coordinate our pressing and when and how we're going to do it. And we work on it for 40 minutes and at the end of the session, like, I look out at my players and it looks to me like they've really got it. And I'm like, great girls, you crushed it. Like, wow, we're ready. And what we know about human cognition is that um, one of the most reliable things that will happen is that people will forget. They will forget, not, not because forgetting is a glitch, but like your working memory is actually designed to forget. Most of the things that you think about will not be useful to you later and your brain will dump them and will not remember them. And we don't control our own memories. So no matter how much those players want to remember the pressing cues, an hour later, they will remember a fraction of it. And the next day, they'll remember a fraction of that. And the next day, they'll remember a fraction of that. And six days later, you'll play a match 
and no one and, and players will not remember their pressing cue pressing cues and they will be disorganized and you'll assume that they've learned it because you saw them do it and now maybe you'll be mad at them and at halftime you'll be like girls we worked all week on pressing you know we worked on pressing cues like if i saw you do it in practice and you don't do it in the game it must be because you don't want it or you're not focused you don't care but in fact what's happening is this sort of inevitable process of of forgetting and so the way that understanding is different from learning is that your ability to do or conceptualize something while it's in your working memory and learning is what's left over after forgetting has taken place and it's actually incredibly hard to remember even something very straightforward under complex performance situation under stress and maybe i can just give you like i'm going to i'll just give you i worked with a um a very high level rugby team and they were playing another team had one of the best players in the world on the opposition team and he's he's the um he's the he's the fly half and he's incredibly hard to contain and so what they decided they made a really small tactical shift that they thought would be helpful which is in rugby when a guy gets tackled um that's called a ruck and if the the, the player has been tackled passes basically like puts the ball on the ground and another player takes it picks it up and plays out of the ruck and there are sort of players on the ground on either side of this. And so on the defense, you would try to like, they're often very aggressive on the strong side of the rock, which is when the guy comes out from behind the rock and is carrying the ball on the, the ball on the side that he carries to, they try and press forward and compress the space. But this guy was so clever that they were like, we need to compress the space on both sides of the rock. So when there's a rock, we need to, we need to be aggressive on the weak side and the strong side. So they call, they call that firing on both sides of the rock, which means we're just going to be aggressive and compressing the space. And they would have video meetings where they would say to the players, like, what's our strategy for beating this team? And we're firing on both sides of the rock. Everybody understood exactly what they were trying to do. To the point of almost boredom, like you couldn't ask them anymore. They like rolled their eyes, like firing on both sides of the rock. But remembering to do something very simple when you have a habit of doing something else under performance conditions is really, really hard. So we went out to practice and one of the first things I said is like, someone should be in charge of watching to see how often we're firing on both sides of the rock. So the coach said, you know, what do you think? How do we do it firing on both sides of the rock? And so the coach who's in charge of that was like, yeah, I think we did pretty good. Of course he does. Right? <laughs> uh, he wants to think he's doing a good job. In he wasn't really looking for it at the time. So in retrospect, he thinks back and he's like, yeah, I think we did okay. I saw a couple of times and, you know, I think I remember seeing us, you know, fire on both sides of the rock. So the next day I was like, we really like, that was a really subjective measure. What if we made it objective and we said like one coach is just going to watch the whole practice long just to see whether we're firing on both sides of the rock like we want to. And to practice that coach is like 20%. We are firing on the, on both sides of the rock 20% of the time. There's no way we're going to beat this team doing that. Why? It's so hard to change a habit, right? Everyone understands, but remembering to do it every single time there's a rock in the middle of practice and I'm competing for a space on the team. So the next day we're like, okay, um, we're going to have two coaches watch for the rock and watch both sides of the rock. And one of them is going to feed the data to the other coach. And that coach is going to radio into the head coach and tell him every time, like strong side, yes, weak side, no. And so doing this the next day, they got to 40%. 40%, right? And basically, you know, because with like every 30 seconds, the coach being like, we're not, guys, we're not firing on the weak side of the rock. It's a simple change that everyone knows how to do, and it's still really hard to do. The next day, they got to 60%. The next day, they got to 80%. 
it started with like just the obsession of like, you have to look for it. You think it's happening if you, if you, but if you're not looking for it carefully, in fact, to me, the key breakthrough was that it was two people watching for it. Cause on the day when you had one guy watching for the rock, like he gets distracted and he starts looking for other things and shouting to guys about it. You're out of position, Kenny, you know, and like, you have to be like, no, your only job is to watch for like what's happening on the rock and having to tell another coach that. So I, I just think this is a classic example of thinking that because I've told people what I want them to do. And in the calm of the meeting room, they can say, I know what you want me to do. Understand the difference between that and learning, which is rebuilding a new habit, even if something really simple and being able to do it every time under duress, under pressure is an incredibly hard thing to do to change, to rewire a habit in a short period of time. And I just think it's so easy to underestimate the amount of discipline that it takes. And so it, it, in order to get that level of attention and focus on a change in behavior in players, you need that level of attention and focus from the coaches. And that was really the change, which was we have to decide as a coaching staff that we are going to focus our attention on this steadily, consistently throughout, throughout a series of practices, as opposed to just say, you know, what usually happens is we say, guys, we should be firing on both sides of the rock, and then we don't do it. And then the coach says, guys, I told, you know, we talked about this. It was your job to do it. But it's it's not it's not as simple as just understanding what you want me to do. It's interesting when you were painting the picture of speaking to those soccer coaches and bringing in the classroom into that conversation. I thought about the first time I talked to an MLS team and I showed a video of the Blue Angels and mm. the Blue Angels are masterful when it comes to debriefing because they watch film. Then they sit around a table and say, here's what I did well, here's what I'm going to improve, and here's what I'm going to do to fix the problem. And so there's ownership. And the rest of the group also critiques them and gives them feedback. And so there's this amazing feedback loop that that they take in. And and so like I, I love what you talked about earlier. When we bring in something from outside our expertise, we are less judgmental. As you were saying that, it is so true. I was watching a video this morning of somebody in the sports psychology world, and I was watching the video and just critiquing. I had my critic hat on. Whereas if I watch the Blue Angels, like I'm fascinated and I'm just all curious. And that's got me wondering about, all right, how do we bring that into our education system? How do we yeah. cultivate curiosity compared to this idea of getting conviction and having conviction in something and curiosity and conviction are, are tensions that I find in my life mm -hmm. quite a bit where yeah. like I'm convicted on something. I believe I'm right. I'm going to shout it from the mountaintops. I'm going to have passion around it. And then when do I step back to conviction and say, well, maybe yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about and how do I put my curious hat on? What are ways that we can cultivate curiosity generally in our society? And if you want to go into yeah. the worlds that you play in, you can. Can I say, like, I love that question. I think, you, like, it's the second time on, the, on this discussion where I think you've broken down a sort of generally accepted but really simplistic binary. Because I think you're right that, like, conviction can be a great thing. But conviction also is a way of saying, I'm pretty sure that I'm right. I know what I believe. And that's like, I no longer see it as my goal to learn. And that's kind of what curiosity is, which is it's my goal to learn as much as I can. I know nothing here. <laughs> I could I, I, tell me everything, right? And I think that unintentionally, our classrooms can, our learning environments, not just classrooms, can socialize 
and valorize certainty and conviction way before they're warranted or beneficial. One of the things that we talk about that can fix this, so I think a lot of times I think that um, the unspoken purpose of a discussion in classrooms is to win it in, play, in teachers, in, in, in students' mind. That is, their perception is that the way to succeed in the discussion is to be proven the person who was right all along. And so like, I'll say my opinion and then I'll say it a little louder and, you know, and with a little bit more conviction. And um, I think that looks a lot like the American political process, honestly, which is like, I make my statement. And then when the opposition is telling me what they think, instead of uh, listening, I'm like getting ready to shout something back at them. And I, I, like, it's clear to me that that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem in the American political process. And it's probably, you know, a problem in other places in society and too. And sports, sports head coaches, right? Like the ability to say, I was yeah. wrong. I screwed up yeah. like in our politics and our, for the teachers, for our experts, uh, yeah. they really struggle with it. And it's leadership 101 is when something bad happens, you say, Hey, my bad. Like I was wrong on that. Yeah. So how do you, and how do you fix that? How do you socialize that? And so one of the like very small things that we do was, that we've done is to give teachers a template for discussion. Um, and I'll just describe what it is and how it works. And then we can talk about ways that you might apply it. But the first thing you do, if you want to have a good discussion is you ask everybody to write. So my discussion is about figurative language in the poem that we just read. And I might be just like, take one minute. What do you, th uh, what do you think the author's trying to do? What might the author try be trying to do with the figurative language in the first stanza? one minute go, right? jot down your first thoughts, right? It's a very like, that's a very safe question, right? What might the author be trying to do? Jot down your first thoughts, right? I don't have to be wedded to the ideas, but everybody writes. And so now when we have a discussion, two things have happened, which is everyone has thought about the question already and their ideas are written down so they don't have to try and remember them. And so they can really listen when other people are talking. One of the biggest barriers to listening to people is you are trying to remember what you wanted to say while they're talking and, and kids will show you that they struggle with this all the time because you'll call on someone in class, actually not just kids, this happens in adult discussions too. And the person you call on will say, what I was going to say is, and that's a way of saying like the person who was speaking before me, I'm going to say what I was going to say before they even spoke. They didn't influence me or they were irrelevant to me. I was convicted <laughs> and I wasn't in a state of curiosity. I wasn't. Yes. Actually or I was so busy just trying to remember my point that I wasn't even listening to the other people's point. And so I didn't hear it. Which by the way, it happens. You've, you've done a lot of podcasts. I'm sure you've been on podcasts where the other person is just, they've got their question then they fire their question away and they just miss like a gem. Right. And for me and my podcast journey, it's like, Hey, hold the questions lightly. And then yeah. if Doug says something like, let's, let's go into that. Uh, and I mean, I think it's a great them. example of how hard it is to listen and so to, to listen and prepare your question at the same time. Cause it's, it's scary. She's like, what if I can't think of anything to say? So I'll, I'll try and remember what I was going to ask. And then you're not really listening to the person. But Doug, I think it's both. Right. So I need to have a question when I do a podcast, I need to be yeah. able to listen and listen, but I also have to have a question, right? I can't just sit here and not say anything. So I have to have a question that I need to release that question if something else takes its place. Mm -hmm. um, so I need to be able to listen while having a program question. And I think it's the same in, in any setting, in a business yeah. setting. All right, you're in a meeting. All right, you might have a question or a comment, um, but it may get addressed. Like I even said something yeah. earlier. You're like, I think you actually covered it quite well. Cool. Let's keep yeah. it going, right? Like uh, it's all good. Yeah. Well, I think it's really one of the most useful things that I ever did with um, 
for a while, I had a group of principals that reported to me for a while when I was running a network of schools and had this fantastic principal who she was the best principal I ever coached. And she also was very exacting and very demanding. And so she would get really wrapped up in meetings in both like running the meeting and how she wanted the meeting to run and, um, and the outcome that she wanted. And, and she, the result was that she wasn't always a great listener, even though she was a great principal. So what we did was we had, we decided that her assistant principal was going to run the meeting and the assistant principal is going to be like, okay, here's the topic. Here's the agenda. The first question is how do we increase student attendance? Like student attendance is off. Uh, Kevin, what do you think? All of that stuff is a drain on working memory. And her only job was just to listen. Like she's the smartest, she, she's the most, she has is the most insightful person. She's the most senior person in the room. And so we kind of shifted from, instead of running the meeting, we tried to free her from all of that. And her job is just to think during the meeting, to listen and think. And, and then if she's like, pause, I want to go back to something that Kevin said earlier, because I think it's really important. And it really did free her up to use her. Everyone's working memory is limited to use her, her working memory in the most productive way by freeing her to listen in some ways. And, and, and by the way, the assistant principal was like honored and thrilled to be running the meeting because it made the assistant principal feel really important and like giving your, you know, your, uh, your colleagues an important role feels good to them. And so empowered, I think and empowered the yeah. other people in the room yeah. to have their voices heard and yeah. to share ideas and questions yeah. and, and thoughts as well. Yeah. So if it, so, so let me go back to this, this idea from the classroom of like how to have a good discussion. So it starts with like, everybody writes first, then we have a discussion. The second thing I want to do is I give you space on your piece of paper to write down what other people are saying in your discussion. And I'm actually modeling this as a teacher where like Brian makes a really good point and I'm like, it's important to listen, Brian. And I write that on the board in part because I want to socialize you to be jotting down quick notes. One of the one quick notes, one of the reasons that people don't build off of other people's ideas in meetings is because they don't remember who said what. And so if I have in my notes, like Brian, it's important to listen, then I can, then I can actually come back to you later and be, oh, it's like that point that Brian made earlier about listening. My working memory will be overloaded unless I write it down. So socializing students to take notes on the things that their peers are saying. But then here's the part that I think is most valuable, which is the discussion ends with the teacher saying, great, fascinating discussion. Go back to the original answer that you gave and rewrite it, um, updating your thoughts and changing your thoughts based on the discussion today. And now the message is, and the habit that I'm building is, the purpose of discussion is not to go and write from the outset. The purpose of discussion is to change your ideas based on what other people in the room said, right? Because the prompt is change, you know, go back and revise what you wrote originally based on the discussion. And then if I really want to build this as a cognitive habit, I say, great, can a couple of people tell me about how their opinion, about how their perception of the figurative language in the poem changed in the course of the discussion and whose ideas really changed you? Yeah, when Brian said that uh, it was, you know, they were always talking about faces in the crowd, but they never identified them. They, you know, I really got a sense of the anonymity. That was really important to me. That changed my thinking. And I think that that, that idea of, um, asking people how a discussion, a conversation changed them, socializes them to think that the purpose is to listen and to change as opposed to like to, to go on the side of curiosity and not conviction, which is I come in looking for the ways that other people around me can make me smarter, as opposed to I come in thinking about that the purpose is to convince other people to think like me. And, then of and course I just I so rarely do that. It's, it's the implicit message is 
you want to be the person who is right all along as opposed to the person who's learning the fastest and the most. And I just think they're like very tent, like to go back from like transformational to transactional, like I think it's a fairly transactional way to like build that habit for people, which is like over and over again, I'm going to ask you to like use the discussion to change your opinion and then tell me how your opinion changed and whose opinion, whose ideas changed your opinion. And like my mindset around this for now is growth mindset, fixed mindset. Okay. Yeah. Say growth mindset. Right. Great. Well, growth mindset, great. And when you're taking the test, like that's probably the time to be convicted. Yeah. This is what yeah. I learned. This is what I'm going to share. Um, and it's important to have conviction and it's important to not just live life yes. with just never ending learning. Like you mentioned our political system at some point, yeah. you should vote for someone and stand by what you're convicted on and your beliefs are. And, and there is value in that. It's just to your point earlier, we often lead with conviction instead of leading with curiosity. And, and for me, look, we've had a lot of disruption in our society over the last three <clears throat> or four years. For me, I try to stay curious first so that I can then have my convictions validated with a sense of curiosity. And and I find I personally am actually wired to do the opposite. I, for whatever reason, and we get in my childhood and all the reasons, like I think I'm very much wired to go toward conviction before mm. curiosity and it limits me. And I find yeah. typically my mistakes occur when I lead with my conviction instead of the curiosity. And so curiosity is a piece that I've always found myself drawn to um, because I think I sometimes don't do a great job of going back to like my five-year-old self um, yeah. as an adult. Uh, the other piece that I've been really drawn to with this podcast is around collaboration. And mm -hmm. um, I think you're in an interesting space because like, I'm really curious. It seems as though you are very drawn to the sports world and there's a passion there so much so that you you create this expertise in the school system. You write a book that's highly successful that teachers are using, and you are now like, all right, I'm going to go play in this sports world because I'm passionate about it. Um, and in sports, we don't always get this right either, where we go toward the individual contributor sometimes over mm -hmm. the person that's a better collaborator and a better team player. We go toward the yeah. talent of the individual as opposed to how that individual will actually impact the team. And I think about our yeah. schools and our schools are often set up for the individual to get an A yeah. and the individual to get their SAT score. But we don't always assess for how do we work as a team. And the last thing mm -hmm. I'll say is outside of sport in the classroom, the more I interact with this world, the more I realize how important it is to be a great collaborator. And so um, whether it's sport or in the classroom, what are ways that you've seen work really well to emphasize and incentivize collaboration? Yeah, I think this is, you know, you went back to like, what are the things that sport and coaching can teach classrooms? I do think that um, this is an area where people think really intentionally about it. In coaching settings, yeah, I think you're right that like there are a lot of cases where like we have a little bit of a star culture and the player who like selflessly builds connections and makes other people around them better. I think we all know that that person is like immensely valuable, but we tend to forget and look for the you know look for the person who's you know dropping fifteen three pointers in. <laughs> um, but I think that a lot of coaches try to deal with this through culture. Like um, I, was, I was just, I did a podcast with some basketball coaches and they were, they were describing Dean Smith's, um, he had this adage at UNC that like, there's never been a basket that was one person that was scored as a result of one person. So when a basket is scored, the first thing you do is point at someone else who's accountable or who's, who's been a positive influence, who's made it possible. 
And the more, you know, the more subtle and the more unacknowledged their role, the better. So, you know, I think this is a process of making collaboration visible, right? Thanking and showing gratitude to people around you for the things that you, it's not just that it, it shows appreciation. There's a lot of really fascinating research on, this actually comes from research on gratitude, which is researchers, social science researchers find that gratitude is one of the most, one of the most beneficial emotions that you can feel. It's good for you psychologically. And the reason is because it creates a cognitive after image, which is if I socialize young people to look for the things that are good in their lives, um, it causes them to be, to start to notice them more and to look for them. Um, and so if I say, you know, let's spend the day, let's finish the day just by thinking about three, three really great things that happened today and, uh, and who, and who helped, and who helped us to create those things and why they were so beneficial. Um, you know, my, my mom got up early this morning, even though she's working the late shift and made my lunch and drove me to school. Like, it's not just that that is like team oriented, uh, self, uh, other rather than self oriented perception of the world, but it caught, the more you talk about it, the more you think about it, the more it causes you to see it, right? There are all these experiences that you should be grateful for that you don't notice unless you get in the habit of looking for them. So the idea of cognitive after image is like, the more I look for those things, the happier I am because the more that I see that the world is a place full of things that I should be grateful for, as opposed to like terrible things. So one of, you know, like ironically, one of the most beneficial things you can do for young people psychologically is to help them to see the things that they should be grateful for and not the things that they should um, feel victimized for, you know, or feel put upon for because it creates a mindset of like, actually, there's a lot of good, the world is full of people who want to help me and want me to be successful and are doing things for me. And so I think that, that in a way, that's kind of what, when I cause people to look for things that they might otherwise overlook, they start to notice them more, they become more aware of them. And I think that that can work in a teammate setting as well. It's kind of what this Dean Smith uh, idea was doing, which is just constantly causing us to notice the small things that make us great, right? If I start to notice um, the positioning and spacing or the decoy run that a teammate made, I'm more aware of when teammates do it. I might be more, more likely to do it myself. Uh, and so causing, I think you can have like very <laughs> systems that cause people to be attentive to selflessness and team or orientation around them helps make more of it happen as well. You've got, you know, I get that this, there's a really beautiful book on, uh, on motivation by this, uh, this British author, Paps McRae, his book is called motivated teaching. And he just talks about like making this, making, you know, making the signal more visible to people constantly drawing attention to uh, the things that you want to have influence people in their daily lives. They're there. Can I magnify them? And can I, can, can I maximize them? Can I make them happen more often? And can I magnify them? Can I constantly be making you see the signal? So we've been going for a while and I'm cognizant of time and your time. Yeah. And yet as you're talking, I'm going back to a Washington Post article I read uh, about you around social justice and around equity <clears throat> in our classrooms. And you mentioned at the beginning, you know, I went to some of the harshest neighborhoods and found amazing <clears throat> rock star teachers that were actually making a difference. And so much of your work is around achievement and is around how do we excel? Um, and the Washington Post article sort of broke down 
different perspectives on how you see things. And, and you've even updated your book. I think it's up to 3.0. So you're constantly yeah. iterating and updating. And as someone who wrote a book, I know how scary it is to put something in words because we're saying we're convicted in it. And if we're still yeah. curious, we're going to change our mind five years, 10 years down the road. Um, but there's a quote in that article that I wanted to bring to bear because I think it, it's just a fascinating one. And, and maybe we'll close with a massive, massive topic that is nuanced and complicated and challenging. But you said the term social justice, I'm aware, means different things to different people. And then you go on to say equity starts with achievement. And as you're talking and you're talking about gratitude and you're talking about um, this idea of like hunting the gratitude and hunting those things, there may be other people listening to this being saying, well, what if I grew up in a society in an environment that I'm not grateful or I am a victim and I am in a situation that does not set me up for achievement? I'm curious to get your perspective, um, whether it's in our school system or in other industries as well, how you think about equity and, and achievement. Yeah. It's a really tricky time for this, right? And I think a lot of people misunderstand um, equity and what it takes to, for me, equity is about helping every young person or every learner have the option, have the ability to be the person that they aspire to be. And that is really, really hard. And it takes a lot of work. And so from like, you know, there's a lot of conversation in this country about eliminating advanced math classes because um, in the name of equity. And I just fundamentally disagree with that. People have the right to be in learning environments that assume that they have the capacity to be great and that are always trying to give them the opportunity to be great. Uh, and there are, uh, the way to honor people is to invest in them and to teach them well uh, and to hold them to high expectations and to say, that's not your best work. And if someone really cares about you, like par part of caring about someone is saying, that's not your best work. And I want to see your best work tomorrow. Cause it's, an, <laughs> you know, you have to sustain the belief that greater effort and greater application every day over the course of years is going to lead to a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And there are lots and lots of voices that will tell you that you don't need to do that, that it's, you know, uh, that you can take the easier path. And I can, you know, all I, can, I just don't think that that's true. And I think that this is how, you know, this is how I've raised my own children as well, which is, um, you know, I want to quit the track team. Uh, as a parent, I can be like, okay, you want to quit the track team? That's fine. You know, or you're probably going to regret that decision. You really should take your time and think it over. Maybe it's because it's a hard practice. Get your shoes. I'll drive you. Right. Uh, I think there is a, I've been in a lot of schools this year where I think, I think people mistake authority for authoritarianism. And I think in many cases, I hear adults in schools say things like adults should not be telling young people what to do. And that to me is mistaking authority for authoritarianism. Like if you don't believe as an adult, if you're a coach or a teacher that you know some things that are beneficial for students to also understand how to factor a quadratic you know, equation, 
how the spindle fibers align when mitosis is happening, you know, what your spacing should look like when you, when you're, uh, when you're defending, it's a gift or, um, how to regulate your emotions and how to delay gratification because that's incredibly, that's an incredibly powerful thing. And everything we've accomplished in our lives, we've accomplished because we've been able to delay gratification. It is, it is a gift for an adult to tell, to tell a young person that and to call and to push them to do those things that are beneficial for themselves in the long run. And I think a lot of people see that now as authoritarian. And I talked to a lot of teachers who were like, should, should adults be telling young people what to do? And I would say emphatically, yes, <laughs> that is what adults are supposed to do. And young people have agency and in the long run, they will figure out what advice is best for them and what is not. But our job is to teach them and teach them and teach them and teach them. Um, and I think a lot of institutions have lost that. And in the end, the effect will be uh, people do that out of best intentions and the, the effect will be the opposite of what they intend. I think that's actually a beautiful place for us to, to end. And like, if I think back to this entire conversation, a lot of it comes back to that concept of making others better and how you go about doing that. Sometimes it's going to be questions. Sometimes it's going to be showing videos. Sometimes it's going to be sharing advice. Sometimes it's going to be sharing experience. Sometimes it's going to be just experiential. And um, for me, at least I'm taking away that range or, or different tools in the toolbox. And, and as a parent, as you bring up your parenting, like I'm learning, I've got two kids. They, they're so different from a nature standpoint. And for me to apply the same logic to each of them, it's not going to work, at least thus far. And so like nurturing their nature is so, so key and critical. And whether people are listening to this as a manager, as a coach, as a teacher, like I think the art of nurturing nature is so, so important. And while also understanding that you have a team or you have a group and you have to be able to also maybe hold them all ac accountable to certain standards and then figure out yeah. ways to treat them differently. Yeah, I really agree. It's, uh, I really agree with that, that, you know, the recipe of things that each learner needs to become the best version of themselves are different. The best way to show that we love someone and care about them is to have high expectations for them and say, I believe that you can be great. And I'm going to build an environment that, that does everything it can to um, give you the opportunity to be great. And I don't think that that always involves making young people happy. Maybe that's where I'm going with this. I did I actually did a podcast of my own with my two now adult children. They're both in college. One just graduated from college and one's in college. And I invited them on the podcast to critique my parenting. Um, and, you know, I'm lucky. They're wonderful, wonderful kids. And the thing that we fought about most when they were growing up was cell phone rules. My wife and I had really strict cell phone rules. Your cell phone does not go in your room at night, comes down at 10 o'clock, your cell phone comes down. And, you know, my kids both told stories about how much they hated that when they were growing up and how awkward it was to tell their friends, like I have, you know, they're in the middle of a conversation with, you know, um, someone they're flirting with. And they're like, I have to, I have to take, I have to stop texting. Now. I have to take my phone down. Your dad does what? He makes you put your, yeah, that's so weird. Yeah, sorry. That's just our rules. You know, they literally telling this story about how much they hated it. But now, you know, what I asked them about, they're like, yeah, now I understand why you did it. I'm grateful that you did it. And, you know, uh, then I also asked them, they're like, will you do this with your own kids? And they're like, yeah, I'm definitely going to do this with my own Like, I get that. I think it's the hardest part of parenting, which is your job is not like, uh, 
you love your kids immensely and your job is not to make them happy in every interaction. Your job sometimes is to, is to cause them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do that will benefit them most in the long run. And in that case is like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave you with that cell phone in your room at night. Cause I know what it can do. And I do, I think that that's really hard. And I think that a lot of people in society have lost the, uh, the intentionality, the will, the strength to be able to do that. They don't no longer believe that that's the job of adults in young people's lives. And I just happen to believe that it is. There's two thoughts there. One is the amount of clients I see that their parents had some sort of rule or went about things some way. And they're like, I'm going to go the complete opposite way of that um, yeah. is also valuable. So to your point, like the wrong advice, like I remember people giving me bad advice. Okay. So right. I went with it. I learned that that's not the way to go. And I adjusted my sales, which leads me to a quote that a mentor of mine shared uh, where she said something that I think aligns with what you're talking about, which is, I don't want my kids to be happy. I want them to be able to handle the world when they're not. And um, like the reality of happiness is um, <laughs> no one goes through life happy all the time. Like if you live a meaningful yeah. life, if you live a long enough life, you're going to experience some sorrow and some bad things are going to happen. And so like, that would be a gift. If you're asking me, what are the gifts I'd like to pass down to my kids? It's not that they're happy all the time. It's that they have the tools to handle when they're not. And by the way, I wish yeah. the same for myself. I, I still yeah. don't know how I'll handle tragedy in my life. And it's easy yeah. to say that you're able to handle adversity. It's a whole nother thing when you're going through it. Um, Doug, this has been a blast. Um, I really appreciate your time, your wisdom, your candor, uh, and your willingness to share how you're intentional and how some of the people that you have been able to observe are intentional with their processes as well. If people want to obviously get the books or follow the, the organization or yourself on social media, I know you're active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, where are the places that people can find you, the company and the books? Yeah. First of all, thanks for the conversation. Really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm on, I'm uh, Doug underscore Lamov on Twitter uh, and Doug Lamov on LinkedIn. And then my, I, I, my organization is Teach Like a Champion. It's teachlikeachampion.org. And you can particularly check out the blog there. I try and post a couple of times a week with videos or teaching or coaching tips. Uh, and so that's Teach Like a Champion backslash blog. Awesome. You can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. And I'm on Twitter, or I guess X. I still say Twitter. I'm going to say Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. I'm sticking with Twitter too until they make me not. Yeah, I'll go, you can find me on Twitter. I think you'll know how to do that at Brian Levinson. And then LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. Doug, appreciate you. And uh, thanks again for coming on. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. One of the most reliable things that will happen is that people will forget. They will forget not, not because forgetting is a glitch, but... Like your working memory is actually designed to forget. Most of the things that you think about will not be useful to you later and your brain will dump them and will not remember them. And we don't control our own memories. So no matter how much those players want to remember the pressing cues, an hour later, they will remember a fraction of it. And the next day, they'll remember a fraction of that. And the next day, they'll remember a fraction of that. And six days later, you'll play a match and, no one, and, and players will not remember their pressing cue pressing cues and they will be disorganized and you'll assume that they'd learned it because you saw them do it and now maybe you'll be mad at them and at halftime you'll be like girls we worked all week on pressing cues you know we worked on pressing cues like if I saw you do it in practice and you don't do it in the game it must be because you don't want it or you're not focused you don't care 
but in fact, what's happening is this sort of inevitable process of, of forgetting. And so the way that understanding is different from learning is that understanding is what you do or conceptualize something while it's in your working memory, and learning is what's left over after forgetting has taken place.